Grit to me is defining your success by being number one and doing whatever it takes to get there. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out, it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach, and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now, on to this episode. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jubin. Excited to be here. So I'm going to read your background to you, as I understand it, and then you can help me fill in any blanks. So you got your BA in finance and real estate from the University of Missouri. Then straight out of school, you went to EchoSign, started as a BDR, then moved on to an account executive, then strategic account executive, then sales manager, then director of sales. At some point within that five and a half year stint, about three years into your time there, EchoSign was acquired by Adobe for those that are listening, EchoSign was the main competitor and I think still is the main competitor to DocuSign. Did I get that right? That's all right. Today it's Adobe Sign. Adobe Sign. Okay. And then you went on to become the VP of sales at Zenefits for about two and a half years. And I want to touch on your time there during the show today. Then you went on to become the chief revenue officer at Rainforest QA, did that for about a year and a half. And now you are currently the chief sales officer at Brex, and it's been just over two years. You nailed it, man. So <laughs> thanks for running through all that. Perfect. So I guess there's a couple things that I had questions on before we even get going here. The first, in your LinkedIn, over two and a half years at Zenefits, the company grew to 1,800 employees, 600 employees in the sales org, and 70 million in ARR. It is considered... Is this true, the fastest growing SaaS business ever from a revenue perspective? Yeah, so I joined Zenefit into 2013, and I was there until sort of middle of 2016. How many people were there when you joined? I think I was the 18th employee. There were a couple folks in sales, and we were just raising our Series A at the time that I joined. And at the time, it was the fastest growing SaaS business from a revenue perspective of all time. I think in 2020 speak, that may have changed. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, where you get to. So I think we were the fastest to 50 or something like that. But in my time here, we never quite got to 100. So if you're looking at companies that got to 100, it's not there. It's incredible. And so when you got there, about 18 employees raising your Series A, what, hovering around a million of ARR? That's right. I joined, I think we were six or $700,000 of ARR. Not a bad run. It was really fun. <laughs> um, some amazing relationships and just an amazing education as well. And now you're at Brex, and I want to talk about what Brex does and that kind of thing. So on LinkedIn, 
I looked this up in July of 2018. So this time, two years ago, Rex was at 46 people. It's now at 455 people. <laughs> Either you're unbelievably lucky or you sure know how to pick them because these are monstrous runs that you're going on here. Well, I appreciate it. I'm sure there's a lot of luck involved. I also have been really fortunate in finding founders and leadership teams that are just off the charts impressive. And both when I initially met with Parker at Zenefits when I was interviewing there, and then when I met with Pedro and Enrique and Michael and, and the other leaders at Brex, I sort of came away with the feeling each time that these people are just going to build massively successful businesses. And it doesn't even necessarily matter what the company does at the time. I mean, I've gone from HR, admin, benefits, software, and electronic signature, and now doing credit cards and, and financial services. It doesn't really matter what the company does. It's more like the people and the leaders and the confidence in their ability to execute. I think that has been part of why these companies have done so well. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you say you met with Parker and Enrique and you just knew, I think one of the things that people really struggle with is sifting through the noise, right? Even professionals like venture capitalists struggle sifting through the noise and they get the least noise and really the most qualified pool of companies in front of them. And it's really, really hard. So when you say meeting with Parker and Enrique, tell me more like what about them was it that really made you believe that this was going to be a really huge company? Well, I think to take even a bigger step back, I sort of lucked into joining EchoSign. At the time, I didn't know what a good company looked like and how to pick good leaders and those sorts of things. And so I was extremely lucky at getting in the door at EchoSign and having Jason, who is the CEO and now a close friend and mentor, he really introduced me to many different founders of all really good companies. And so I think I had a sample size at one point to be able to delineate good from great. And so I think maybe the lesson there as people are looking for new opportunities is to meet with a bunch of different companies and then be able to, to sort of start to stack rank and determine what you think good and great is. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I Actually, I wasn't expecting to do this, but I'd love to spend a little bit more time hearing your story about EchoSign. I think a lot of people, and I think you're being humble and modest, like this notion of you got lucky getting into EchoSign. Maybe you did, but then there's a string of six, seven promotions there that didn't feel quite like luck. You could be lucky. You could be in the right place at the right time. But ultimately, the best thing that you could do for yourself to take advantage of a lucky situation is be at the top of the leaderboard. And when you're at the top of the leaderboard, you know, magically, you know, there's more lucky opportunities for you. And so I don't know, maybe I'll leave it open ended. But tell me about your time at EchoSign. Was it a consistent performance for you that earned that next job? I'd just love to hear about the hard work at the beginning of your career to kind of land your first manager job. And I think the audience probably thinks about that a lot as well. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things that are outside of one's control. And then there are things that people can control. On the things that are outside of my or anybody's control, first is the company has to be growing. And so it's very difficult to progress your career quickly in sort of a stagnant environment where leadership positions aren't opening up regularly. Because if there's not a team to manage, you can't be a manager. And so one, you have to be in an environment where the business is growing. Two, and again, this is outside of one's control, 
you have to have buy-in from the leadership team and sort of a philosophy of promoting from within. And I was fortunate at EchoSign, and I've sort of carried that to Zenefits and Brex as well, that promoting from within oftentimes is the better alternative to hiring leaders externally. And so at EchoSign, I was lucky that the business was growing very quickly and that the leadership team, Brendan and, and Jason in particular, had this philosophy of promoting from within and growing people's careers. Then I think there are the things that are within one's control. There are three big ones. One is effort. It doesn't take skill to work harder than anybody else. So just work harder than anybody on the team. And that bodes well, I think, long-term. I think attitude is really big. Again, no skill required to have a really positive attitude. So just come into the office with a smile on your face, be a positive influence on the rest of the team, act like a leader. And then the third one that does require skill is performance. And I've always defined my success, to your point, by being at the top of the leaderboard. And so I think if you nail those three things, which are having a positive attitude, putting in the effort, and being at the top of the leaderboard, if you're in an environment that's growing, where people are promoting from within, you really leave the business no choice but to progress your career. You stand out as the obvious person when the management role opens up, when the director role opens up, et cetera. And so that's sort of how I think about it. So in preparing for this, I watched a couple interviews that you gave. It was easy to prepare because you gave some really awesome interviews. But you and Parker, the CEO of Zenefits, gave an interview years ago on a Saster stage. I think it was with Jason, if I'm not mistaken. Parker basically said it would scare the crap out of him because Sam would always be very aggressive about promoting people early. And he meant it as a compliment. And I think it took him a while to become conditioned to this motion of, you leaning in to promoting people early. Now, I think the negative case against that is that I end up coming back to this conversation with a lot of guests because it's pretty important, but the top reps, what makes them a top rep isn't what's going to make them a top leader. I would assume what made you a top rep isn't going to be what makes you a top leader. How do you synthesize what good looks like for a rep and what good looks like for a leader? Because it's maybe not as easy as just always plucking the top rep out and pushing them into a leadership role. And they might not even want that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So on delineating individual contributor track versus leadership track, two of those intangibles that I talked about that are separate from performance around effort and attitude are big ones because the people that are reporting to this future leader are going to emulate their behavior both in terms of the effort that they put in and then also the attitude that they bring to work. And so you can imagine reporting to a manager that's very negative and how that's going to rub off on the broader team. So I think all three of those, I'll call them pillars, are really important in future leaders. And I think when I've failed promoting people to leadership positions like a management position and it hasn't worked out well, one of the lessons that I've taken away is I didn't ask myself the question, would I want to report to this person? What would the experience be like of reporting to this person as a manager? And each time a manager promotion hasn't worked out, and I've certainly had some of those, the answer to that question would have been, I wouldn't have liked it. I wouldn't have liked reporting to this person for you know whatever the reason may be. So I think that's like a good test to try and give when thinking, is this a future leader within the company? And then the last point, I talked about the selfish 
reasons to be in an environment where one can progress one's career. I think on the company side, if you're creating an environment where peers are seeing their top performing peers being promoted into more strategic, whether it be account executives roles from SDR or leadership roles from sales reps, that's extremely motivating. And so creating that type of environment just generates performance and effort that is so much greater than an environment where that type of career progression isn't taking place. Makes total sense. So the two things that Sam and I have already probably touched on and will likely continue to touch on are recruiting talent and scaling inside sales. I think we both got so excited we just jumped right in. Before we go into it, Sam, or before we continue to dive into it, do you want to take a second to talk about what you do today at Brex, what Brex does? I'm personally really curious with everything else going on. How's it going? So Brex, as you said at the top of the show, I've been here for a little over two years. When I joined, we launched with a corporate card product that's designed for venture-backed tech companies. And the big differentiator for us is we underwrite based off of cash balance. And so lots of different tech companies that were getting declined or getting sort of nominal credit limits from card companies could come to Brex and get six, seven, potentially eight-figure lines of credit just based off of the funding that they've raised. And it wouldn't matter if the founder was international or had little or no credit history. We've evolved since we launched two years ago with the first corporate card for startups into a corporate card company that serves a number of different industries. We also have what's called Brex Cash. It's effectively a bank account replacement. And we continue to offer more financial services, expense management. And so we're just a sort of broad B2B financial services company. The business has done really well. So when I joined similar sort of growth trajectory at Zenefits, I was about the 20th employee. Today, we're bumping up to about 500. Interesting times in 2020, as you can imagine, credit card spend specifically around like travel and entertainment took a hit in early Q2. So end of March, beginning of April, we've recovered. So the technology and e-commerce spaces where the majority of our clients are, those are two industries that have fared pretty well throughout this pandemic. And so our customer base is actually doing quite well and increasing spend. And, and that bodes well for us as a business. I was talking to Carlos Delatore, the CRO of Trip Actions, and he kind of echoed a similar thing. And I said, Carlos, what's going on right now? And he said, well, a lot's going on and nothing's going on. And on, on the nothing, like no one's really traveling. I think he said that it gave them the opportunity and Trip Actions saw a very similar growth trajectory to Brex, where he said, look, when you grow this quickly, there's a lot of crap that just breaks. And most of that stuff is processes and procedures and the product as well. There's just a lot of things that it gives you the opportunity to refocus. And so I think his perspective at the time, and I think they're starting to rebound through this as well. It's a little bit different, but I said, look, we've been able to rebuild a lot of the processes. I mean, Brex has literally 10x from 46 people in two years. So I imagine you guys had the opportunity to do a bit of the same. I couldn't agree more. Look, the pandemic itself is obviously a terrible thing. I think that there are some consequences of that, specifically around some slowed headcount growth for Brex, where it's really allowed us to reset and put a lot of time and thinking into 
long-term strategy of the business. And we're focusing on building through the rest of this year. And so we've really shifted from hyperscale to building products that are beneficial to our customers throughout the end of this year. And then we're going to focus on scaling again in 2021 when the environment is sort of more attractive to do so. Yep. Makes sense. You guys took the billboards down all around San Francisco. For people that don't live in San Francisco, they were everywhere. Well, maybe a bit of a learning. So we did this and some companies do like a formal launch and we did that also. So had somebody gone to our website in early June of 2018, they would have seen coming soon. And so we like launched on a specific day. I think it was June 23rd of 2018. And our perspective on this was we get one opportunity to launch our business and product. And so we're going to take as much advantage of it as we possibly can. And to your point, we bought all the inventory we could in San Francisco on outdoor. And it all went up the day that we launched and directed people to our website. And I think it made a really big sort of splash between the PR that we received launching our product, and then putting all of this advertising up at the same time, it was really sort of this shotgun approach to launching the business. Yeah, I think probably out of home or outdoor budget during a pandemic has taken a bit of a hit with um, (laughs) the streets being less crowded and, and whatnot. So I'm sure we'll get back at it as soon as people are back in the office. I'm looking forward to seeing them again. Hopefully I get on the road again too sometime. Okay. Topic one, we'll just jump right back into recruiting talent. One of the things that I heard you say that I thought was really interesting and I was hoping you could unpack a bit more is in another Saster talk, you said, I probably suck at just about everything else, but if I can recruit, I'll be okay. What do you mean by that? It maybe wasn't as eloquently said (laughs) as I would have liked if I could do it over. I think what I'm saying there is I give a lot of credit to the success of the sales organization at Brex and the success of the sales organization at Zenefits to the team that I and we have built around me. And when I'm able to put leaders and sales reps in positions where they're actually better at their day-to-day role than I am, that's a huge win. And so if I'm able to recruit I'll give some examples like Ashley Kelly runs our sales development organization. She's just an incredible sales development leader, probably the best. And by being able to recruit and hire her, I just let her go. And she uses me as a sounding board and like I try and remove roadblocks for her, but she runs a better SDR organization than I could. And I think that same sort of mindset is true with each of the different leaders that I put in place. And I hope that transcends down to the sales reps as well, where we're trying to hire the best people to come in and sell the product better than maybe even their manager. What skills would the people that work for you, maybe Ashley's an example, would they say you have that makes you an effective recruiter? And you're gonna have a hard time answering that because you're a humble guy, but independent of clearly you have to pick the right opportunity. You have to be a part of this amazing company that's growing like crazy. But what about you, Sam? What do you think it is that makes you an effective recruiter? Yeah, I think there are a few things. One, I think through these experiences that I've had at EchoSign and at Zenefits, now at Brex, I think I've developed a pretty great network of people that I can tap into when I need to fill 
leadership or sales rep roles or otherwise. And so I think that's very beneficial. And I think I have maybe earned a reputation of creating the type of environment that I described earlier in the show, which is one where we reward top performers with career progression and above market compensation. And I think when you create an environment like that, it's really attractive for people to want to join. And I think if you look at some of the people that have been leaders in previous organizations for me, Hannah Wilson is the VP of sales at Modern Health. Matt Plank is the VP of sales at Rippling. Jameson Young is the VP of sales at Gong. And there are several others. And so I think people that aspire to be in those types of positions at those types of companies, they've seen people progress their careers in organizations that I've been a part of and helped run. You mentioned above market compensation. It's interesting to hear you say that a lot of sales leaders that I know try and get someone for as affordable as possible. You have a different perspective towards that. I guess maybe the question is, how do you justify that with the business and the CEO? And is that compensation done through a high OTE or what you believe to be a really attainable quota? So the best salespeople have an expectation that they need to earn a certain amount of money. And in order to get the best salespeople, you need to create an environment that gives them the opportunity to do just that. Otherwise, they're not going to join or they're going to leave. And so if the company philosophy is we're going to hire the best people for the roles that we have available, that sort of comes with the territory. And so that's kind of how I think about compensation philosophy. Now, it may be, and Brex is potentially even a good example for this, maybe we use like a Yelp, a hyper-transactional sales environment where you're hiring really junior people to do what I'll call sort of like a less strategic sale itself. You maybe don't want to be paying top dollar for that type of sales environment because the separation that one is able to create from the rest of the pack is far more limited. And so I think that holds true in in a sort of like true and slightly more strategic sales environment than it does maybe like a hyper-transactional one. And then in terms of philosophy on quotas, I like 70% plus of the team to be over 100% of quota. And the reason that I like that specific ratio is twofold. One, it sort of creates an environment of winning where the majority of people feel like they are successful. And that's really motivating to be in that type of a winning environment. And then the second reason is it's very difficult to enforce a quota when the majority of the team is not hitting it. And so you can imagine where, let's just say six out of 10 reps are not hitting quota. So you've got 40% of the team that's over 100%. And you're trying to talk to one of the six people about what they need to do to be able to get to the level that the company has said is acceptable. And they're saying, well, like, gosh, more than half the team isn't at quota. So I don't know if the problem's with me. It looks like the problem's with the quota. And so by creating an environment where the outliers are the ones that aren't being successful, you create an environment where the quota is far more enforceable and you can have 
some of the more difficult conversations with people that aren't meeting the bar. The CEOs and sales leaders in the Kleiner portfolio ask me all the time, Jubin, what kind of culture should we create here? And I always say a winning one. There's just nothing better than a winning culture, 10 out of 10 times. And if you're not winning, you're going to have a crappy culture. There's just really no way around it. Couldn't agree more. And I think that there are two big components of that. One is the company targets. You want to be hitting targets as a sales organization and as a company. So it feels like the team and the business is successful. And of course, you want that to be a reality. So you don't want to set fake targets. And then I think that's true at the individual level also. So when those things align, when the company is perpetually hitting revenue targets and you've got the majority of the team hitting their personal targets and you've got people getting promoted into more strategic roles, you can just imagine the form that the organization starts to take. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, one thing as I'm hearing you talk about this, it's easy to talk about. It's difficult to implement. And it's particularly striking hearing you say you kind of hold that 70% bar with companies that most of us would dream of being in that grow so quickly. And what I mean by that, and this is a kind of roundabout way of getting there, when Zenefits or when Brex is growing at literally breakneck speed, right? You have to continue hiring people. And what ends up happening is territories continue to get chopped up. And it's just very, very hard to maintain something that's equitable for everyone where you can keep that bar at 70. How the hell do you do that? No, it's a good question. And you're right, it's hard. <laughs> um, and in the spirit of transparency, I think it's benefits towards the end, we weren't able to do it. And we got to a point, you know, I was there for two and a half years for the last few months that I was at the business, we weren't hitting that 70% number. It's because we added too many people to the machine and it sort of broke. And so it's a delicate balance on the growth side to make sure that you want to continue adding fuel to the machine and you want to keep adding people to continue the growth trajectory that the business is on. Well, at the same time, you don't want to overdo it. And so what I would say there is a couple things. One, we want to set the tone from the beginning of the relationship that we have with new hires that you should expect to make your OTE. And so what we do for the first three months of folks' tenure at Brex is we set a ramping goal and we pay out at 100%. And so almost without exception, everybody that joins the sales organization is making their 100% on target or 100% of their variable from day one. And I think that sets the tone. We mean business around you know paying on target and I think softens maybe the blow of switching companies for a lot of people. It's an easy thing to do and it's relatively inexpensive. And then the other thing that I would suggest is sort of a lesson from Zenefits. We sort of continued hiring people as confidence level that we were putting them in an environment where they could be successful was declining. And so I'll, I'll give an example of that. We hired a bunch of SDRs one summer like classes of 80 to 100. It was crazy. In a summer. Yeah. So each month, it was like 80 new SDRs, 80 to 100 <laughs> new SDRs. And you, of course, have to have the infrastructure to absorb that headcount also. So a lot of this was new managers, 
new SDRs, even new directors. And so looking back on it, if I put myself in the shoes of an SDR, these are generally less experienced people by nature of the role. It's sort of like an entry-level sales role. Do I think that I could have come into Zenefits with a class of 80 reporting to a new manager that was also in my class, reporting to a relatively new director? It's sort of like the blind leading the blind leading the blind. Was my probability for success in that role going to be high? Like, of course not. And I think in hindsight, it was a mistake. And so I think growth of the business is extremely important. But I think measured growth is, again, sort of a delicate balance in one way It's a subjective way of having some confidence around that is just think about the environment that you're putting a new hire into. Are they going to be successful in that environment? And if the answer is yes, hire. If you sort of start to like waver on it, maybe take a little bit of a break. Do you think it's your responsibility as a VP of sales or a CRO to temper expectations of growth? And I'll qualify the question like you are the growth lever. When the company says we want to hit this ARR, they look to Sam and say, Sam, what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? Do you think, and maybe as you've gained credibility and done this a bunch of times in your career, maybe you feel like you can do this now, but do you feel like you're in a position to say, hey, we don't have the ability to put people in a position to be successful and we won't be able to do this in a thoughtful way that I think could really hurt us long term? Personally, I do. And I think both at Zenefits and at Brex, there's a lot of trust that exists between the leadership teams. And I mean, seat at the table is a cliche, but I've always had probably the most influence in terms of what the next quarter or the next year revenue targets look like. Between myself and finance, I kind of the ones setting those and signing up for those. And so I think if sales or the person running revenue doesn't have a lot of influence on the future targets for the business, that's going to be a huge miss. And I think sets the business up for a potential disaster. People, when I say people, both CEOs, boards, even employees, when you're transparent about decisions and future targets and why they are set certain ways, I think that's so much better than setting an aggressive target that you don't have confidence about and then missing it. And so, again, it all sort of goes back to trust that I talked about at the beginning. Like, there's a lot of trust that exists with the different leaders at the companies I've been at. I think that's really important. Yeah, makes sense. And that's a clearly earned trust. When you're picking a number, are you starting with a number, whatever that number is, you pull it out of thin air? Hey, we want a two and a half X growth next year. And then you and the CEO and the board say, okay, this is the number. And then it's your job to go figure out how to get there. Or do you do it the opposite way where you think about what is the maximum capacity that we have to scale? And then what would that add up to from the bottoms up in terms of a quota for the company? So a couple of things come to mind. The first one is there should always be a number. Even in month one, set a target. And I think in the early days, you're not going to have a lot of confidence around that target. And it's because you don't have much historical data to guide you in setting that target. But set a target and then do everything you can to get to that target. And I think my sort of like early days suggestion on this would be set targets that 
you have a high level of confidence that you can hit them because you want to set the tone from the beginning that you're creating this culture of winning and that missing targets isn't acceptable. You don't want to start off on the wrong foot here. And so set early targets that you have a lot of confidence in hitting, and I would set them frequently. So at a new business, you don't want to start at Brex as an example, when we launched in June of 2018, we didn't have our December of 2019 revenue targets in place. We were adjusting on what started as a monthly basis and then sort of turned into a quarterly cadence. And ultimately, you know, now we're getting more towards like annual plans. And so I think more frequent adjustments early on is important. And then in terms of how do you pick what the actual target is, you do both. I think you start with, let's look at the historical data. What is our growth trajectory over time? Okay, we're growing at 20% month over month. It's reasonable to assume that as the base gets bigger, that number maybe gets a little bit smaller. So like set something that you feel comfortable with for the next few months, pick that number, and then make sure it aligns with the team you got. So then you go with the bottoms up approach and you're like, okay, here's sort of what we think. We think we're going to grow 18% month over month for Q3 of this year. Do we have the people in place to do that type of growth? Mm -hmm. And so you kind of marry the two. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of laughing because I don't think we have a chance of making it to the scaling inside sales. This is definitely going to have to be a two part (laughs) conversation. So I was reading something. There's a guy named Brandon Cassidy, who you know well. He was your boss at EchoSign. He was the VP of sales at EchoSign, correct? And I think he was the first sales rep at LinkedIn and et cetera, et cetera. This was probably 10 years ago. I'm just guessing, but ironic foreshadowing. He wrote on your LinkedIn, Sam's a star. And I feel pretty confident in saying that EchoSign's achievements, getting acquired by Adobe, crushing our competition, would not have happened had Sam not been here. He's part of the DNA of the company. He was instrumental in helping us figure out what we needed to do to win. He can drive transactional run rate business, and he can close strategic six-figure deals with the likes of Aetna and Cigna. Simply put, he's been a superstar at EchoSign, and he's 26, so you'll be seeing a lot of him moving forward. And obviously, all the first part of that's very flattering. The part that really caught me was the end. And I think, I say foreshadowing because he was right, first of all, he was right. Second of all, I think as a young leader, how did you earn the respect of your team and recruit the requisite talent? And I think now you're living this. You are in some ways embodying Brandon's role, right? And bringing up the next generation of young leaders. And I'm sure there's a lot of aspiring young leaders listening. So maybe if you could share your story of, I don't know, I think a lot of people get really nervous doing that. And I feel like they're insecure that it's maybe imposter syndrome, that that they didn't earn this job or they didn't qualify for it. They were just a boat in the rising tide or they can't hire people older than them with more experience because they won't get the, you know, the respect that they deserve. How did you think about that? And has that perspective changed over time? Yeah. So first, thank you for reading that. I think very, very flattering words that you read and that I guess Brendan wrote. This was 10 years ago, right? Yeah. No, I, um, I, I worked for Brendan for, and I, I referenced him earlier in the call too. I, I worked for him for five years, great friend, mentor, and a lot of stuff that I'm talking about, like creating this environment where people are promoted from within and people can make money and the culture of winning and 
this all sort of came from my education through Brendan's system that he put in place at EchoSign. In terms of the, how do I think about age and becoming a leader at, a, at an earlier age and those sorts of things? Well, the co-CEOs of Rex are now, I think, 24 years old. When I joined, they were 22. And I think probably my perspective, you asked if my perspective changed. My perspective on that when I was maybe 22 would have been one of like concern that somebody running what now is a multi-billion dollar company in their early 20s. I think my perspective today is um, the sort of like adaptation and learning that takes place through the 20s and early 30s that I've now experienced. If folks like Enrique and Pedro, who I think are 24 each, are performing at the level that they're performing today, there's still so much more upside that they have yet to realize. And so these guys are off the charts as CEOs today, and they're only going to get a lot better. I think that happens much less as you get into your, certainly happening less for me. I've changed far less from the ages of 30 to 35 than I did from 20 to 25. And so I look at it as like an upside thing that people have as they're younger. And then in terms of earning the respect of people that were older than me at the time that I was promoted and I then became their manager. This again is probably something that went through Brendan's mind. I think you earn that respect through performance and through taking on a leadership role naturally. And when I was 25 or whatever it was, I was generally at the top of the leaderboard and I tried to go out of my way to help everybody on the team hitting our team numbers for the month. And it was sort of less about me personally and my personal performance and a lot about how do we get across the finish line to our team numbers and what can I do to help the other folks on the team. And so when I was promoted, I suppose I would hope to think that a lot of the other people on the team were excited about it because it would put them in a position to be more successful where I could spend a lot more of my time helping them and that they actually would embrace that. And that's what I've found when I've promoted younger people into leadership positions where they're managing people that are older than them, that oftentimes the reaction of those people that are older in age is one of, great, I'd love to work with this person more frequently and have them help me more because they're already helping me a bunch. So I guess that's what comes to mind. Yeah, I agree. And ultimately, going back to your maybe original point, I think, especially in sales, and maybe this is controversial, I don't think it is, but motivation comes from within. We've both led people that are older than us. I'm not necessarily worried about managing them. I'm not actually managing them. All I'm doing is finding the right person in the seat where the motivation comes from within. I'm not standing over their head managing their pipeline or their forecasting or really any of these things that are really intangible that I would hope to try and qualify for in a recruiting and hiring process because I can't push someone harder than they could push themselves. And if we can continue to hire those types of people, then I think it becomes a lot easier. And that gave me, I think, a bit of a sense of relief. For sure. Yeah. And I think as you were commenting and, and agree with everything that you just said, another thing that came to mind is this transition takes place. I think one mistake that I've seen people make as their role changes from, let's just call it AE to sales manager, taking on a new persona 
or coming in with sort of like a bit of entitlement or coming in with, I'm now the manager and having that go to your head a little bit, there can't be a worse thing. And so when I think back to when I was promoted to a manager, not much changed. I remained the same person. I still had personal relationships with people. There was maybe an element of accountability, but there certainly wasn't a sentiment of hierarchical, I'm now your manager. And so I think that's maybe a mistake that people make as, as they let the promotion go to their head potentially. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that I wanted to touch on with you around talent and recruiting. So you have three principles that you've spoke about in the past. One of them is hiring the right person is the most important thing you can do. I think we've talked about that. The other two are really interesting for me. The second is recruiting is part of everyone's job. And the third is hiring is all about mitigating risk. So can you talk a little bit about the second one? Recruiting is a part of everyone's job. In the presentation you give, you talk about how at the time, I think this is at Brex, there was no referral fee. It's a part of your base salary is recruiting. At the time, again, there was about 60 reps. All of them were internally sourced, no recruiters. And I think the reasoning you gave behind that is that you set an expectation early on that everyone recruits and that's part of the job description. And maybe you could just expand on that. Going back to first principles, ideas don't build companies, people build companies. And the success of a business is so dependent on the team itself and the execution of that team. And so there's nothing more important to the success of Rex or arguably any other business than the people that are in the business. Then I think tying in the mitigating risk, the probability of somebody being good and successful that is an in-network vouched for person compared to an unknown quantity that comes from an external recruiter or something like that is just so much higher. And so when we've built a sales organization at Brex, we don't use recruiters to source. We source all of our candidates internally from personal networks and in the networks of people that are successful in the organization. And we found that when somebody puts their name behind a candidate, there's something that's kind of magical that happens. When we hire that person, the person that referred the candidate knows that it's a reflection on them. And so they go out of their way, they being the current employee, go out of their way to make the new hire successful in ways that just sort of a random or unknown quantity hire doesn't have that advantage. I think that it's a two-way street because the new hire feels a sense of responsibility to perform because they know it's a reflection on the person that referred them. And we actually verbalize that to each of them. And so again, that all sort of ties back to why we think it's everybody's job to recruit because there's this sense of responsibility that comes with hires that are referred. And we also think it gives new hires a higher probability of success if they come from a network top performing employee at the company. Interesting. It's atypical. I don't know of a company that doesn't give a referral fee. So I think as long as you set expectations crystal clear up front, it seems to be working. Yeah. I also think we want to drive the right behavior. And so I think if we pay people to refer candidates, there's maybe a higher probability that they refer people that they're less confident about because there's a payout associated with it versus referring people that And again, we we sort of verbalize, this is a reflection on you. 
So refer people that you have a high level of confidence that they're going to perform. The third principle is hiring is about mitigating risk. And I thought this one was really interesting. And this could be an hour on just this one. So can you talk about it? What does that mean to you? Hiring is about mitigating risk. Yeah. What I mean by that is you want to put people in the roles that you're hiring them for that have the highest probability of success. And so this could apply to AEs, this could apply to sales managers, this could apply to VPs of sales, but maybe let's just take an AE as an example. First, I think you want to mitigate risk by where you're sourcing the people from. So we talked a little bit about that. I think for me personally, the way that I think about it is if I've personally worked with someone and know that they are a top performer, sourcing that type of a candidate is the lowest risk. I think the second lowest risk is if I have a top performer on my team and they refer a candidate to me, the probability of that candidate being successful is also super high. I think that you know lowest order would be somebody that comes into the website and applies for a job and are sort of an unknown quantity. I think that that's much higher risk than certainly somebody I've worked with in the past and have seen them perform. There are other things that are important. So again, sticking with this AE theme, I've always tried to solve for similar deal sizes. So if at Brex, we're doing, you know, let's say it's a role that closes deals that are 50 to $250,000. We want to hire people that have closed that type of deal before. We don't want the true field sales, seven-figure, nine-month-long sales cycle person. And we don't want the hyper-transactional Yelp person. The other thing we want to solve for, at least historically, we're a startup. And process and structure and really formalized training, at least again, historically, we've evolved a bit, haven't been things that we're really good at, especially you compare us to like a sales force. So we want to hire people that have experience operating in that type of an environment, earlier stage startup without a ton of structure and process in place. So we didn't hire from Oracle and Salesforce because it's just a very different cell in a, in a different environment. So that's what I'm talking about when I say mitigating risk is putting people in the positions that are going to have the highest probability of success. And there are ways that you can be thoughtful about doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. The way you talk about mitigating risk is from Sam and Brex hiring people. What if I maybe put that in the inverse? How have you mitigated risk as an employee working for people? So specifically, what I think of is you've probably mitigated your risk with Jason Lemkin, as an example, or other people that you've worked for. You talked a little bit about this in the presentation. I thought it was fascinating. But what I think you were saying is that you have unique leverage with those people because they've seen you do very good work. And so just like you want to make sure as an employer that you know the person in front of you is the top AE and da, 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 it's different to have worked with them and really seen what they could do. And so I would imagine if you're coming to work for Sam and you've worked for Sam before, or if you're Sam and you're coming to work for Jason and you've worked for Jason before, you're in a position of unique leverage where that person will go vouch for you, where their reputation's on the line, and where really they know what you're made of. I'll pause there and get your reaction. 
No, I, I think that's exactly right. The same way that you nailed it. Companies want to mitigate their risk with who they're bringing on. People want to mitigate their risk with companies that they're joining. And especially when we're talking about senior salespeople and certainly sales leaders, if they're good, they've worked really hard to build up a reputation of being good. And to go somewhere where you apply online and you're a total unknown quantity, you really sort of waste a lot of that reputation that you've spent a lot of hours earning. Because if not for Jason referring me to Parker, I don't get that job. Parker relied on Jason a lot. And had I gone to Zenefits.com and filled out an application to the VP of sales position or whatever, I'm probably not sitting here today or getting that job. And so I think the best people also lean on the networks that they've developed and the reputation they've earned by being at the top of the leaderboard to mitigate their personal risk. So I think you nailed it there. Or yeah, maybe one way to think about it is mitigating their personal risk. The other is like they're maximizing their value. That's right. Yeah. And you can imagine you know, going in day one, where if you've applied online and you're a total unknown quantity, you have to start over. Compared to a lot of the folks that we've hired at Brex that are in network hires, either personally or from other leaders, they come in and they can focus on getting right to business and not their personal reputation and building that back up and whatever else. All right. This was awesome. And thank you so much. So there's two questions that I always wrap up with. Number one, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? So for me, grit is defining your success by being number one. And so what that doesn't mean is defining your success by hitting quota or something like that. There's only one person at the top of the leaderboard. So grit to me is defining your success by being number one and doing whatever it takes to get there. If someone wants to get a hold of you, is Brex hiring? What's the best way to get a hold of you? If Brex isn't hiring, should they still try and get a hold of you? Sure. So I'm Sam at Brex.com. So that's my email or LinkedIn message or whatever. We've got so many ways of communication today. And then, yes, so we're primarily building out sales in Salt Lake City going forward, but there will be exceptions to that. And we'll pick up hiring probably in like Q4. Sam, thank you for the time. Jubin, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.